Oh, I'm ahead. We're doing DG. Oh, I'm so glad, Nancy, you said that. Wow, <laughs> I'm, a month, I'm a month ahead. I've just finished next month's book, My Father's Business. That was an awesome book. See, this is what happens when you go on vacation. I'm all discombobulated. Yeah, I know that feeling. Awesome. I loved this book. Oh, Barry, you need to read this book. It looks very interesting. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Let me get to my notes on that book. Thank you, Nancy. I was going to oh. go go off on a whole other tangent. I've been all week frantically trying to finish the new book. So here's a funny thing. I uh, dur During COVID, my brother... Um, wanted me to go to his condo in Boston. So I've been working out of Boston and I don't really want to be here, but I have come up with in the last week that I am just giving excuses to leave, not to leave. <laughs> Besides that, it's nice to be near the water. I, I have to admit that going back to Atlanta full time, it would be too much not near water. And I love water. So are you going to stay or go? What are you going to do? Um, I'm in the middle of a development project for a piece of land in Atlanta, and I feel compelled that I have to be in Atlanta, even though I'm not leading the project. It is my land, and I feel like I need to be in Georgia. So there's your answer. So you're going to go, but maybe you can go and get a handle on the project and then go, you know, go back to Boston. Yeah, Can you do I mean, half, and, half and half? Well, it used to be really cheap to fly around, but I don't think it's so cheap right now to fly yeah, around. But when I go back to Atlanta, I really don't want to do all the flying around. Plus I own a house in New York, Western New York. So um, you know, I run a vacation rental, and that's been the bright spot of my revenues in the last, you know, last year. So that was that's good. great. That's All right. So I guess, yeah, we got one more minute before we start chatting about Dollar General. Oh. <laughs> Who's in the background? I don't know who. Um, I think that might be Lee. Lee, are Lee, are you telling someone you're part of a book book club? <laughs> Let me see if I can mute myself. I don't know. She must be around some other people. All right, it's eleven thirty. So welcome everyone. We're talking today about my father's business, the small town values that built Dollar General into a billion dollar company. So it was, I, I loved the book because I love when we read books that talk about retailers that we've been in their stores. And this is from when they started as a general store, the grandfather started the business. Um, it, you know, the story, and then then the, the son took it over and then eventually the grandson who retired a few years ago. And the whole history 
of how they went from the general store and how the son went into the army, then came out, the grandfather's running the retail business, mercantile business. Um, there's a hilarious story in the book about how the, so there's three generations, the founder, the son, and then the grandson. The grandson is now, you know, he's still alive. I looked him up 70 or so years old, 80, but is no longer, you know, an active member of the of the board, I think. But um, the son, the middle guy, was in the middle of um, the store one day and an older man came into the store and said to this, I think he was like 14-year-old kid who was helping out in the store, I'm here to get my wife underpants. And the 14-year-old and the 14-year-old kid says to the the um, customer, um, do you know what size she wears? And the customer says, no, I, I, you know, like about this size or, you know, whatever he like used his hands. And the 14 year old kid yells across the store to his aunt and says, hey, Aunt Millie, what size underwear do you use? <laughs> do you wear <laughs> to get the underwear size for the customer. And, you know, he said it was one of the most embarrassing, I mean, it embarrassed the customer and embarrassed the kid and embarrassed the aunt. Um, but he, he learned from that point on about how you, he said, I learned at 14, how you treat a customer and how you have to be careful how you treat a customer and the employees. And that they, he brought that up throughout the book, that story. And it was, you know, a laugh out loud story, but later on they, they, you know, the, the grandfather, the founder of the book of the dollar general of dollar general was the buyer, right? Like he overbought. So I have a tenant that overbuys all the time. He has warehouses. He takes empty space of mine. He pays market rent on them. He cannot help himself. Like he never believed in, in a deal. He never didn't believe in a deal. If, and this is, was this founder of Dollar General, they would, they, they would buy, um, you know, uh, they would buy, they'd go to like a dungaree or jean store and they would, he would buy the off, like the pockets were sewn incorrectly and he would buy all those jeans. And he said he knew that his customer didn't mind the, um, you know, the off, you know, the, the non-perfect pair of jeans and that he could buy them at a discount and then resell them to his customer versus the, the Macy's or the Sears or the Pennies who would not accept jeans from a jean manufacturer that wasn't perfect, that the jeans weren't perfect. So, and he would buy um, bulk and then they, they learned as they grew, which, you know, when we read the Amazon book, I don't know, nine months ago, the, the, the story of these retailers who start with the, the small idea and the small concept and how they grow and the growing pains, one of the uh, stories in the book on the growing pains was they used to, he, he, they would not allow 
a truck to be unfilled. So they would pack the truck and the truck would go deliver the items to different stores. And then years later, they realized that the inefficiency of going and dropping one product off at one store or distributing one product over more stores, but then certain stores were low on something. It was just a nightmare of efficiency. And then they realized it was better to just send a store to, uh, I mean, send the truck to a store and fulfill that store's merchandising needs than trying to pack the truck. So I thought that that, that was a, a great story in the growing pains yep. of the store, yep. of the story of Dollar General. <clears throat> um, they, he, they talk in the, the book a lot about the going public. You know, they, they tried to go public and then they backed off. And then a few late years later, they went public again. You know, they obviously went public and how that impacted um, the organization, as we know, in our line of business, we see that and we read those stories of, of businesses that either go public or are purchased by you know, private equity firms, how that changes the whole makeup. The, the grandfather who founded it and then the father, the father had two sons and both of those sons were in the business and one, and, and they didn't agree. So the, the guy who just retired a few years ago early on in um, his regime, he had to fire his brother. So that was a big problem and a big deal in the book when he had to, they were just at odds. They, they, did, they had different ideas of how to grow the company, how to treat employees. So he ended up having to fire his brother. And then years and years later, he had to fire his father, which was a heartbreaking, heartbreaking part of the book because he loved his father, but now they were a public company and there was a board involved and they voted that the father had to get out because the father just was not along the mission of the new Dollar General. So going from my father's business, right? My grandfather's business, my father's business to now a public company with a board and having to report to analysts. It's, um, you have to do what the analysts and what the board says. It's, it's kind of like growing up and putting on your big boy pants or big, you know, big girl pants. So it caused a lot of distress in the family. And they, you know, that they talked about that some in the book as well. Um, they talked about uh, Barry, you'll love this. They, he talked about how they could never pay more than a dollar a square foot for a location. <laughs> so they've changed a little bit over the years, but they had they would have these edicts that you know you never did this or you never did this or you never did this. And one of them was with real estate, and you never paid more than a buck a square foot. So that was fine in the you know 40s, 50s, and 60s. It's certainly not who they are today. But, um, but that was an interesting part, part also in the story. So any, so Carla, Janet, Kirsten, did any of you guys uh, have a chance to read the book? I'll stop talking for a second. I did not. No problem. You don't have to read the book to be, to be here and listen to my cliff notes on it. Janet, did you read the book? No. Awesome. Any 
Kirsten. Oh no, Kirsten says no. So, um, you know, some of the other things that that happened also in the book was how they really believed. And I think you, and Josie was so funny. Josie was on vacation in her RV. What, tell me what you told me about Dollar General. That I, that I see one on just about every street corner. It's crazy. They're everywhere. In the, in the small towns. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like in towns with like 250, 500 people, there's a Dollar General. They're everywhere. Yeah. So that was, so their mission was they are the small town provider of commodities. Like, you know what, Barry, Barry and I have a friend, Chris Ressa, Pepsis and Pampers. They want to be that small town provider, you know, like an, like a, a, an answer to the supermarket if there isn't a supermarket. And, but, and obviously in small towns with 300 and 500 people, you're definitely going to pay a lot less rent, but they've grown up, right? And they are now in Miami, in major New York, they're in major metropolitan cities uh, and they do unbelievably well. They're one of the, str- very, they're one of the strongest retailers in, in the pool of retailers today, right? Yeah, and I've even seen them in some, I've sold some in really small areas where even they serve the migrant farmer community even. Um, but no, they, they, they're in bigger cities, like you said. And I mean, I've, we've sold like $8 generals so far this year. Um, you know, some were in tertiary markets and some were actually in pretty good locations in, in reality. Yeah. And they, so they, they believed that they were the answer to the, the farmer or the small town. And that's where they started and when, where they grew up. Um, but then they, at some point in the book, they said that they had to, they kind of had, they started, they acquired two other store um, chains. I was going to say conglomerates, um, but two other store chains, which got them expanding. One of them was in the Midwest and they pretty much almost, I think, doubled or, or maybe added 75% of their store ca- count when they made this acquisition. And it, it pretty much upended them in as far as uh, the inner workings of the team in trying to um insult you know bring them in to the to the other uh working the operations of the existing dollar dollar general uh it, it was a big problem there there was also a funny story about how the grandfather never wanted credit cards he was anti credit cards because and this was very i thought this was very um he understood his customer. He did not want the lower income person. He didn't want them. He wanted them to use cash and not be beholden to the interest rates. And he said, I know my people and they're, they have cash on Fridays when they cash their check, they come in, they buy their, their items in the store. And he was against credit cards for years and years and years and years and years. And he said, I don't want my customers to be beholden to buy now, pay later. 
and then have to pay the interest rates, which, you know, he was a very, the, the grandfather and the, the, I don't know if, I think all three maybe, very religious, very, very religious. I think that the middle son, and, and I think all of them were, were very, very devoted church going men. And there was, you know, there was a, a at one point, there was a, a topic in the book about them closing on Sundays. And I think they're one of the, um, the preachers in one of their churches was, was challenging them on why they were open on Sundays if they were such religious people. <laughs> and, but the, I think the grandfather said, I'm a merchant over, you know, over a, a God-fearing man or something. He said, you know, my people, this is when they shop. They shop on Saturdays and Sundays because they're working during the rest of the week and I need to be open. So that was interesting. Um, but getting, the, the, go ahead. I'd say, Beth, getting back to what you were saying before you go on about the integration with that merger, I mean, that's something real quick that Family Dollar and Dollar Tree have really struggled with. And that's been a very awkward relationship that in hindsight, um, probably would not go through again. But and part of that is that is that just they have different cultures, different corporate backgrounds, and it's not it's not gone smoothly for that reason. I guess same thing you're referencing with DG. Do you see any do you see any changes coming about? Do you think that they'll they'll spin them off or do something differently? Or are they going to keep pushing through and trying to make it work? It seems like they're pushing through and trying to make it work. And if anything, they're trying, you know, they're combining the two into some stores where it's a family dollar, dollar general, dollar tree. And it seems like they're trying to make it work. I think at one point there was speculation where they unwind it and just kind of give up. Uh, but it seems like they're trying to make it work, but they're having a hard time competing with dollar general. I mean, DG you know, really, really did great coming out of the, la the great recession and it seemed like that's when they got mainstream and uh, continued in that, you know, the dozen or so years since then have you know, continued to grow at like a thousand units a year. At some point you think you can't keep doing that, but they do. Yeah. The, the, the other big part in the story was when they, they were from Scottsville, Kentucky is where they started their, that's where their headquarters was. And um, they moved it to Nashville. It's still in Nashville today, right? I believe so, yes. yes. Yeah. So, Good Lipsville, um, I think maybe. I can't, if I'm, maybe I'm wrong there. I can't remember. Yeah, I think so. I said in Nashville. And that was a big deal because the grandfather felt that they were turning their back on their Kentucky origins. And he, and that was a big fight, but they, but it was a distribution thing, right? It was completely driven by distribution and by the store count that they had at the time. And, and the, um, the middle guy, was it the middle? I, I keep getting confused on which of the three, you know, it, it almost read like a fiction story, but one of them, I think it was the middle guy, um, went to Harvard Business School. So this is, oh no, no, it wasn't the middle guy, it was the son. So the son who who was the last Turner, Cal Turner Jr. was, um, he decided at some point that he learned how to retail from his father and grandfather, but that he needed some professional guidance. And he learned about the Harvard Business School of Retailing and this professor there. So he went there and throughout the years, he would return to different 
programs that this professor at Harvard put on. They did, he brought him into the company. Eventually he was on the board, this, this professor, and they did, uh, I remember he decided that they needed to do some strategy, some like mission statement and strategy going forward. And he went to his father and grandfather and said, we're going to have a strategy session. You know, we're going to set goals for the company. And the, 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 the father and the grandfather thought that the kid was, you know, we don't need that. We've never needed that. Why do we need that? You're going to bring in some strangers to help us create the strategy. We've grown this company from, you know, $400,000 to $10 million. Why do we need to create a strategy? You know, can you imagine what I'm sure those, the grandfather and the father, you know, if from wherever they are, that what is the value today, Barry? Probably hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Six billion. They have. The, an I just say it's in the billions. Yeah, it's in right. the billions. They have. Um, it says they have sales in excess of six billion dollars. But I don't know how old that is. That's just something that I'm reading from the book. So it's probably in excess of that. He, at one point, they did a store. What? Bless you. At one, you. Point, at one point, they did a store in a very rough neighborhood. Everyone told them not to do it. It ended up getting burnt down in you know, a disturbance in the neighborhood. Very sad. And everyone told them not to rebuild it. And they went and they rebuilt it. And they used the store. They were having a, this, I just love this. This was probably the best, one of the most heartwarming parts of the book. Um, they, they, when they decided that they wanted to bring the store to this community, this underserved community. So a desert for retail. Cal Turner says, we're going to put a store there. They, they didn't have, they couldn't hire people. There, there was no people to hire. So they brought people in from other stores to run the store. And then they created an incubator training program for the community to learn how to work and be retail merchants in the store. And they promoted single African-American women single moms to be assistant managers. And they created a program where, because they, they at, they like added a daycare in the community that they built so that the single moms in this community could work for dollar general, add an amenity to their community, but understood that they couldn't leave their kids at home alone. And I, I thought that, and it changed the whole community. Um, they they didn't do a lot more of those because you know I don't I don't know why but that one story was really amazing and they won a bunch of awards for that um, I, I, and maybe they did more but they just didn't talk about it in the book and that was outside of the Nashville area that 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 example which I just love that there is an example in Georgia where. They, someone put in a grocery with fresh food. I don't know if it was on the South side or some other side. And they also had vandalism, like significant vandalism is unfortunate because the community was running it. I don't know if it's been reopened yet. It's currently going on last year. Oh yeah. Um, but it's interesting just to say what I know about Dollar General is 
there is pushback from communities. Like I was at a, um, a zoning meeting and there was some hacklers didn't want a dollar general going in. They wanted a real store, you know, with fresh food. And, but the problem is, is that grocery stores don't sometimes want to come into those communities because the, the revenue isn't strong enough. Yeah. Right. So the community challenges it because they want, sometimes the community wants a Walmart or a Trader Joe's, they don't want a Dollar General, but Dollar General, obviously, as we all know, in the business has added food. Um, so that was after the email this morning. Has added food, right? And Barry, that's become a problem, right? In a lot of leases uh, in our world, in our retail world, that now that Dollar General is becoming a mini supermarket. Yeah, and it's interesting. It's funny what you say. I mean, I had a deal uh, actually for a mutual friend of ours was the developer and it was up in the Tampa area somewhere. And it was like right at the entrance to a pretty affluent neighborhood. And they fought it like crazy. They didn't want a DG. And I made the statement as nobody in that neighborhood's probably ever been in a Dollar General. But once they you know go in there and realize what it is, they'll probably you know, go in there all the time instead of driving you know down to Publix or Walmart. They'll, you'll just quickly pop in DG and pick up they just need a couple little items because it's, it's actually, if you go in there, it's not sleazy. It's a, you know, it's clean. Yeah. And, you know, if I had one near me, there's probably times I'd go there instead of um, Publix or Walmart, certainly instead of Walmart, it's a whole lot easier to get in and out of. Um, so no, I agreed. And they are a, like a little mini grocery now or mini retail stores for sure. Yeah. I remember we were, we went to the, we stayed at a little place by a beach a few years ago and we went there and we bought noodles, you know, things to, to take to the beach house. Cause, cause there, it was far away to the nearest Walmart or target or anything like that. But dollar general had that stuff, right? Josie, I bet you went into dollar, dollar generals on your trip. I was going to say dollar general saved us when we were staying in Amicalola state park in Georgia, the closest Walmart and grocery store was like 45 minutes away. And Dollar General was like 10. So we were there like every other day getting ice, getting, you know, buns, getting this, getting that. So yeah, they saved us. Yeah. They, uh, the, the, the father, the grandfather and the father, they thought, they believed that the single biggest concern for every entrepreneur is cash flow, However, the, the, the man who liked to buy the deals, inventory. Inventory will kill a retailer every time. And that was, he said, Cal Turner Sr. He said, he used to say, if I have to, to declare bake, he goes, he used to half joke when he got a good buy on some goods. If I have to declare bankruptcy, I won't be embarrassed to tell the judge what I paid for the inventory that I can't get rid of. He was so proud of himself for every time he got a deal. He bought a farm and put it in his wife's name. This is, this is in like 1930 or 40, so that if the company went under, they could return to the land and start over. He, for years, I kept all my assets in my wife's name for the same reason. I could, so I could collapse our business 
and we wouldn't be left destitute and we could begin again. He said, being an entrepreneur, you have to be aware of the enormous risks and that is common upon with entrepreneurs. He said, most people don't realize that entrepreneurs can't borrow money like you read about people in the news. If they can get a loan at all, entrepreneurs pay high interest rates where big companies pay zero interest rates, thanks to the government. And the, the entrepreneur also has to personally guarantee the loan. So it, he will be personally ruined if the company can't pay. It's a lot of, a lot of risk. I remember actually one of the things that I always remember actually from one of your um, South Florida investor summit, I'm trying to remember what you call it, retailer award rather that you're having in November, which is awesome. When you had the interview with uh, Dwayne Stiller and he made the statement, you know, looking back, there's a one day he woke up in 2008, I guess it was. And he's like, it hit him. It's like, holy crap, I'm signed personal and hundreds of million dollars in notes. I'm going broke. It's like, I don't know how to make this work. And, you know, it's, that was something that always stuck with me that, you know, like you said, that entrepreneur, they're signing personally on a lot of the, particularly as they're starting up or for first number of years. Absolutely. Absolutely. And most men, I, I, I have signed personally on millions and millions of dollars. Those properties better <laughs> perform yeah. or at least I'll have my house. But yes. <laughs> We, we absolutely, there's people that are very, there are people that are risk averse, right? And then there are people that throw caution to the wind and always believe it's going to end up fine. Glass half full, glass half empty. The company went public in 1963. 1963. That's a long time ago, right? They did, oh, he also got sued. He got, he got sued um, in 2002 for illegal practices under the security laws and I think, and he ended up having to resign from the company. And the way that they talked about it, it 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 was just some errors. I, I don't think it was malicious, right? This I don't think so. At least the way I mean, this guy did write his own book. So, uh, but it it was more of accounting and the way they did the warehouse, the inventory, all of that that um, that there was this big lawsuit against the SEC. And in the end, he, they just, uh, he, he resigned, took accountability, and then with Dollar General, the company was able to move forward because there was someone they could pin something on, but he didn't, you know, he didn't go to jail. I think they had to pay some fines. Oh, they pay, he personally paid a fine of $1 million. But he said the process was terribly injurious and punitive. A lot of people got hurt. He said, everyone seemed to have a stake in making us look bad. And he said, um, 
he he said it was unfair that a person that's that someone could accuse a value-based leader like himself of cooking the books so uh he, he it, it was you know one of the worst times in his life and the fact that he lost his job over it he literally had to resign so um they say that he uh there he the family are all billionaires now right of course after you know with all of this time oh. and um what Did you someone say something so you know but people people accused them this is an interesting part i thought this was very interesting people accused dollar general of taking it advantage of the poor that that even though he only wanted in the beginning the family only wanted cash not credit cards there are there is a whole underpinning of culture or of the consumers that they believe dollar stores are some the basic type of business like pawnbrokers and payday lenders oh. i don't think that is true i don't personally think that's true do, have you guys mm -hmm. what do you guys think i think they're providing something really important for their community i agree and I jobs agree. and jobs absolutely I used to be amazed at how they could even pay salaries, but the velocity of the dollars that come in far outweighs, I think, the salaries that they have to pay, pay their staff. There was, they used to pay out of the cash register. That was another part of the book that they were paying the, the managers and assistant managers out of the cash register. And then when, and the grandfather's like, we've done it. The grandfather would look at the sales of every store every night. Mm -hmm. And he, he early before they had computers, the grandfather never wanted a computer. The grandfather would call every store every night to find out what the till delivered, the till. And then right. they- they grew too big. So then they, got, then they got him a computer and they said to the day he died every night, he would look at the revenues every night from every store. So I, I thought that was awesome. But um, they, when they changed it to a payroll system, that, that was a big adjustment. And this was literally in the late seventies. This was not, this was really late that they changed into a payroll system. And they incentivized, they had a bonus system where they incentivized the assistant managers and the managers out of the revenues per store, which frankly is not done a lot in retail stores. You know, I've got a, a niece that works for Bed Bath & Beyond and, you know, they have some bonuses, but they're not really tied to the revenues of the store. So that, that was a whole other part in the, in the book that was interesting. And um, it was a very long book. I really enjoyed it. I listened to it. I didn't read it. I listened to it during my walk. I did the hundred miles in 30 days. So that's when I listened to it. Wow. But um, yeah, glad to have that behind me, Carla. That was, that was challenging. But um, I, I really thought it was an interesting book. I loved the whole um, dynamic between 
the starting of it with the mercantile store, farming community, to I liked the family, the three generations of the men. Um, not a lot of the women in the family worked in the family business, which was interesting. Then the whole going public, the acquisition and how that they, they tried to assimilate different cultures in. And um, the, the whole thing with the SEC, you know, for him having to fire his brother, him having to wow. fire his father, and then the board having to fire him. It, it was a fascinating story. I, I, I highly recommend it for all of us in the retail world because it, it, I think anytime we can learn about how retailers start and where they, and, and that they're still around today. I mean, we all know lots of retail chains that are no longer around. And I think they are, they're, like I said, they're definitely one of the top highly rated retailers today. I, right. Mm -hmm. I, are, what are, are they, are they a plus plus does Moody's give them an a plus plus. Do you know, Barry? Don't, they are investment grade. I don't think they're a plus plus. They are investment grade. How do we, I want to say maybe like triple B plus. I'm not positive of that offhand. They are investment grade. How do you, if I just typed in dollar general credit rating, it would tell me. Uh, let me see. I've got a, Two. Oh, BAA2. That's probably Moody's. That it's is always Moody's. a little confusing. Uh, say. Yeah, are, are they better than Dollar Tree? Yes. Oh. Their average building is nine to 10,000 square feet. Their average lease term, 10 years. They were triple B. This is dated. I think they're either triple B or triple B plus, but they're they are investment grade. What what is the when it's not investment grade? What is it? What's the what are uh, the anything letters? below triple B minus is triple B minus at, on S and P is considered investment grade. So anything below that is not investment grade, which I think is overrated personally. I mean, I don't. I, I don't take that a ton into account. Some investors do. I, I think it's kind of overrated. Uh, yeah, they're triple B. And they have, it says they have 9,961 9, 9, stores located Ooh. in 39 states. That was as of March, 2012. What the heck? I say they're way, I think that's why I was thinking that sounded low. I mean, they've been adding like a thousand a year for the last number of years. I'm looking at a number of stores. I have two questions because at one point they wanted to go urban and then all of a sudden I saw in the middle, like near farmers or in the middle of nowhere. Did the book mention anything about that? I've got no. about 16,000 stores. 16,000 stores. A little more. Uh, yeah, 16,278. They have 143,000 employees. It Ooh. says, that, yeah, they're, yeah, they're in Goodlettsville, which is near, Dow near um, Nashville. Mm -hmm. The, um, they, so they've created, they have two new concepts, right? They have pop, pop shelf, pop shelf, and they have DG something where the DG brand is going urban to downtowns DG to go. I think it's called, do you know what the name of that is, Barry? 
Say pop shelf. I'm not sure. Oh, DGX. DGX. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So DGX is the concept that's going into urban. And then top shelf is going to be more home goods, linens, things like that. Um, and they're just starting to roll that, those out now. And that's kind of compete a little bit like Party City and yeah, that sort even to a degree. Right, right. Yeah, more party store items. And kind of targeting a little bit more affluent um, customer as well. Oh, and they've expanded. Now they're in 46 states. Yeah, I went in California a couple of years ago, which opened up a big market for them. Um, so they've still got a lot of territory they can cover out there. And they they um, they said in April 2021 that they are, want to hire 20,000 employees. Wow. 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 Is that that's amazing. Uh, they have they have private brands. Right. They, besides, they also have uh, Procter and Gamble and other brands, Kimberly Clark, General Mills, Pepsi. But they also Pampers have their Pepsi. Own they do sell. Pampers and Pepsi. <laughs> oh. What what state do you think has the most Dollar Generals? I say Texas. You're so right. You're so smart. I love it. 1500. Georgia is the next one with 915. That's surprising. That's interesting that Georgia would be number two. That's kind of surprising. I would actually that is that's surprising to me. They have um, seventeen distribution centers in sixteen states, cool. and since two thousand and seventeen, they've opened stores in new states of North Dakota, Wyoming, and Washington. This they do not have any states in. I mean, any stores in, as of 2020, they don't have any stores in Alaska, Hawaii, Idaho, and Montana. So that may have changed since. I would guess Idaho will become a big market for them. I mean, uh, not like Texas, but I would bet Idaho will eventually be a pretty good market for them. Hawaii and Alaska, those are probably outliers, I would think. Yeah, I would say Idaho and Montana, they should add stores, but probably Alaska and Hawaii, the distribution would be a problem. Yeah, be too expensive, I would think. Yeah. So so that was really what I wanted to chat with today about uh, my father's business. Uh, I loved it. I would highly recommend it, especially Nancy, if you are trying to do business with them. And Barry, you do so much business. It's it was just a very interesting read. It was more fiction than the other books we typically uh, read. So I really liked it, but it wasn't a short book. So, um, and then Cal Turner, the guy, you know, the guy, the last guy, he uh, he was the the reader so you know nice you had to speed do the little speed up because he was had a southern draw mm-hmm. <laughs> thanks beth and go bucks oh my favorite okay so next week next month we're going to do the book i thought we were going to talk about today that i was frantically trying to finish this week uh which is no excuses 
by Dwayne Dyer. And he lists the 18 most common excuses. As I said, I went out and walked today. <laughs> You read this book and you're, you can't look yourself in the mirror and blow off something that you know you should do. It's, it is, um, it's not an easy, I'm listening to this one too. It's not easy. Uh, Dwayne, Wayne Dyer is um, a, a man of faith and he talks about that a little bit. Uh, but it is really um at the end of the book, you, you definitely are motivated by hearing the words you use and is it really an obstacle or is it an excuse? So if you are having a hard time reaching your goals, I highly recommend the, reading this and, and being with us next month to talk about it. And that's it. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank Can you. I ask one question. Thank you. Yeah. Did, you yeah. did you look at? Did the book mention um, competition with Ollie's and how they trans? And the second question is: Did they mention how they transfer? You know, stop buying like odd lot kind of things versus mainstream. Because when I go into Dollar General, it's kind of all mainstream now. They sure did. They yeah. The, the only competition they talked about was competition that they that they wanted to buy or own. I think they felt that Family Dollar was definitely a competitor, but they didn't really talk about that that much. They, they never brought up Dollar Tree. So I'm not sure if maybe the book, Dollar Tree wasn't really uh, a big competitor at the time that the book was written. So, um, and I they think, did- I would they, think they're also a, a little different when you think Dollar Tree and Dollar General. Dollar Tree, you walk in there, everything's a dollar. Dollar General is, you know, is way beyond that. Yeah. In my opinion, well, I think they're- yeah, That's a good different. point. That, that's a good point. And then they did, they definitely talked about uh, doing more mainstream purchases versus bulk. There was a whole section about that and how they, they needed to stop just buying stuff because they mm -hmm. got a good deal and they needed to- to provide the communities they were in with Pampers and Pepsi, right? They need, whether they got a good deal or not. Yeah. So, you know, where the grandfather, the, the early stores were just filled with stuff like yellow aprons. There was a story where he bought yellow aprons and they were millions of yellow aprons in all of the stores. Um, and they, I think that was the item that they never sold. So uh, they did start to say, we have to provide what the people need, which, which are diapers. And even if we don't get a deal on the diapers, we still have to buy and, and supply the diapers. And then there, there was a story where he went, I think the Procter and Gamble guy came to meet him in Kentucky and said, you know, we need to work together. I, you now have 500 stores. You need to start distributing our products. And the grandfather's like, you're too expensive. I can't afford your products. And then they made a deal where the Dollar General, Dollar General got a better price than maybe, you know, other retailers that were distributing the Procter & Gamble products. So it was community driven 
so it was, and this was definitely a controversy between the middle son and the founding father that were, that guy just wanted to buy these bulk items. And the son said, we have a community we're serving that customer. So that, that was very interesting. Thank you, Nancy, for asking about that. All right, ladies. And and they prided themselves on how um, Big Lots no longer really buys Odd Lots, but Ollie's does. And so that's a whole segment of, you know, low cost or Odd Lot business. It's kind of an interesting niche. I don't, I've never been in an Ollie's. Um, if you can get it in one of your shopping centers, I would, they are, they would not, I hate to say this and maybe you can guide me, but I went in, I visited them and they were like, I said to, I wanted them to come to my community in New York. There was an opening and they wouldn't do business with me. They wanted to do business direct with the landlord and they did business with a, an, a landlord they had already experienced with, um, I can't remember if it's 25 to 32,000. So if you have, if they're in your state, um, it's a good store. So. Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, what we, do they pay any rent? Cause in South Florida, you know, it's rent driven. No, they are like, they're, they're very, um, they want to cut corners everywhere. Okay. It was yeah, they're probably. They're probably not coming to Miami anytime soon. Okay. But for my other clients that have stuff in the Southeast, I'm sending an email right now to one of my agents. Have you talked to Ollie's? Because they we have some, for, my client has some former Walmarts that probably Ollie's could take. But that's too big. Isn't a Walmart too big? They'll split it. They'll split it. Okay. All right, ladies, thanks for participating. Thank you, Beth. I'll see you next time. All right, bye-bye. Thank you.